We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Today on the podcast, I speak with Gregory Rufa, founder and CEO of Sedalis, a company that is transforming the way we interact with each other. Gregory started off in the mortgage broker business where he learned how to work with others to get stuff done. Gregory then went on to form Carigo, a platform to help manage facilities with wireless work orders way back in 1999. His time at Carigo was a wild ride. At one point, it went from 200 people down to 16 in a single day. That taught him a lot about how to manage a business during a downturn, but also the toll that stress and strain can take on you. One of Gregory's proudest technical achievements was keeping Carigo's cloud services up and running during the early 2000s, which was the very beginning of cloud computing. To put that in perspective, Amazon Web Services did not even exist back then. Gregory also learned during his 20 years of ups and downs to take things one step at a time, prioritize, and define good people. It was his team that really made it all work. Without a good team that's aligned to the company goals, works well together, and can trust each other, Krigo would have folded a long time ago. Gregory's new venture, Sedalis, is totally different from real estate management. Sedalis is focused on helping people heal through deep connections with others that take VR to a next level. It's a fascinating idea whose time has come. And if you're interested in how to to have transformative experience without using drugs, this is one to listen to. Now, let's get better together. Gregory Rufa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jerry. So Gregory's has an interesting um, business <laughs> that, uh, of course, I'm going to tease about and we'll get get to in a little bit later. Um, but we actually met through Founders Network. I think the first time we met was at the retreat uh, mm-hmm. that happened last year. That retreat was pretty enlightening, uh, least of which I got to meet you and talk with you, but there was no power. <laughs> so we sort of had to, this digital detox that none of us thought we would have and uh, you know, a bunch of 
type A founders that, oh, I don't have my email. <laughs> Got a bit nutty. Uh, but before we talk about what you're doing today, um, I'd like to know kind of how you got to where you are today and how you're doing what you're doing. Sure. Um, I grew up uh, with a father who was an entrepreneur and um, he was, we had a close relationship, have a close relationship. Um, but throughout his uh, career as a serial entrepreneur, um, he always treated myself and my brother um, as he, he talked with us uh, like we're adults. And he, he brought us into his world and, uh, you know, thought through his ideas by talking with us. And so it gave us an intimate, um, you know, portrayal of what being an entrepreneur was like. And uh, both the good and the bad. Um, he had success early on, uh, which, um, you know, he, he, he did some really cool things. He, he actually, he was working for IBM in the late sixties, uh, working on, um, commercialization of barcode scanning. Mm. Okay. And so he took that technology and in the early seventies applied it to library automation. Oh, okay. So, um, if, you know, anytime in the late seventies, eighties, nineties, checked out a book using barcode scanning that came about from his company. Um, originally they, they had some competitors later on and he sold out his portion of the company in 83. Um, but, uh, his company is the first to actually do that and installed it in library systems around the world. And so, um, it was computers, it was software, it was, uh, you know, um, these, the mid seventies and it was an exciting time. Oh so, yeah. That was like the Renaissance. <laughs> cool. And so, 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 so your dad was an entrepreneur kind of got you, got the bug, I guess, or at least the training. So how did your early career sort of start? Um, I worked, uh, as a programmer, um, for him, uh, and I, I saw him, you know, front through my high school. So my high school was in the late eighties, um, and college and ladies and nineties. And I worked as a programmer, um, for him throughout most of that. And, uh, I went to college and when I was done with college, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. I got a degree in philosophy and it, um, wasn't, uh, directly applicable, um, to the business world. And really? So, I would think that <laughs> philosophy is like the cornerstone of civilization. <laughs> well, it is, and it, it is applicable. It's just not directly applicable. Yeah, that's people don't hire you for that. <laughs> 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 Although they should, maybe there should be a corporate philosopher. You know, I think that'd be a pretty cool job. Well, I mean, a, I think most most corporations should have corporate ethicists. I mean, I think it, it, it's becoming ever more important as we move into the new world that we're moving into, that, that, that there are people thinking about um, really the ethics of what they do. And um, you know, we now have you know, places like the Center for Humane Technology that are serving this role as an ex outsider um, to, to companies, but um, really companies need to build it from the inside as well because yeah, we see a lot of bad acting out there, um, intentional and unintentional. Yeah, we certainly do. We certainly do. So philosophy, cool. Yeah, philosophy, uh, but I had some skills as a programmer, um, and uh, I had some ideas. 
And when I um, got out of college, uh, interest rates had just dropped. And um, my cousin was interested in starting a mortgage brokerage. Um, and so he invited me back to take part in that. And I started a mortgage brokerage with him um, in the early uh, mid-90s. And um, I wanted to move it online. And it was a little early. This was just the very beginnings of the web. Um, there was no bank who would talk to us about originating over the web. Um, it was it was a tough sell. We actually put some pieces in place uh, to do automation um, through uh, through um, real estate agents' offices, and the idea was to drop a originator into real estate offices so people could get qualified on the spot. Um, and uh, we did that and built that out into a small network in Kansas City. But um, mortgage banking and the mortgage brokerage industry was not something that I wanted to remain um, connected to for a long time. And the draw was out here to the West Coast. And um, we had sort of uh, you know, shot our load in terms of our um, the, the initial funding that we had to build a big network. And could still make a small brokerage successful out of it, but it wasn't for me. I, I wanted to get back out to the coast to get to California. It was 95. The web was starting to really ramp up. And um, so I came out here, uh, out here in the Mill Valley right now, but out <laughs> in the Bay Area. Right, right. To uh, start a VR company with um, some, some other co-founders, uh, uh, that I had met back in the Midwest, but uh, three of us and a fourth one joined us a little bit later, moved out here together, two from Chicago and myself from Kansas City to start this VR company. And um, we didn't really know what we we're doing, but we um, got an initial gig doing some work for a publisher out here. Um, VR was way, way, way too early. Oh um, my gosh. Yeah. Back then <laughs> the web was just, was brand new back then. Um, and so that that uh, learned a ton in that business. Um, it, it really lasted for about a year and um, learned a lot about relationships and um, what to do and what not to do. And then um, needed to move on. And I went to work for another entrepreneur um, and uh, uh, helped him sell his company to Motorola. And... Um, you know, that was my first exposure to a big company at Motorola. Um, and great experience working for for the company. The company's name was um, Ring Zero Systems, and our product was Ring Central. And um, Ring Central was a uh, a all in one uh, communications device for PCs that we sold to OEM uh, manufacturers of PC, IBM, Acer, HP, all the you know, compact, all the big ones back in the day. And uh, we sold that to Motorola. And then um, after Motorola bought the company for, I think, $16 million, um, they killed the project. <laughs> Motorola was yeah, <laughs> about three months into it and they killed the project. And wow. that was spend 16 million dollars and then uh, I, I never i never get that so that happens a lot actually it's shocking yeah it was um you know it wasn't it was first experience you know i didn't know anything coming out of college and i began as president of a company and i learned uh, business um from a family sort of business perspective initially 
Um, and then at Motorola, it's like you're eight, nine layers below where any real decisions gets made. And so I had enough of that in a few months' time. And so um, rolled out with a few folks who had been with me at the previous company and um, a few folks that we had met at Motorola, and we started Corrigo. Um, and that was a long roller coaster journey of about 20 years. Um, it ended for me last April, finally. Wow. So, 20 yeah. years. 20, 20 years startup. Yeah. We sold, um, Krigo got sold to Jones Lang LaSalle JLL in December of 20, uh, December of 2015. Yeah. Wow. And so so wow. So okay, so twenty years startup. I mean, that's pretty. It's a lot. Long time. Most people roll roll in and out of startup a couple of years. Some of the ones that you know have been the quote unquote most successful maybe last five or six. What what was some of the challenges going through through all that? I mean, what what what? Let me step back. What was the product that you guys did with that company? So we were working. Um, we we got rolled when the when Ring. Zero Systems got rolled into Motorola. We worked for the Lexicus division in Palo Alto, um, off Page Mill. And uh, the Lexicus Lexicus division, not even saying that right, um, produced uh, mobile data devices. And what we knew from that experience was that we didn't know exactly the form or the shape, but you would soon be able to walk down your corner AT&T store and buy a device that would have data on it. And so knowing that, um, we tried to figure out what, you know, what could we do with that? And we really you know, didn't foresee the iPhone exactly, but we knew these data devices would be ubiquitous. Um, and so the idea was one of my partner's um, family was in real estate, and I had some background in real estate, residential real estate at that time. And they did um, you know, large uh, property management for large uh, residential units. And so knowing that we had an entree into that market, um, we looked at what could be done on site with wireless work orders. And so the idea was basically wireless work orders to mobile data devices to tell people, hey, go fix the toilet in, you know, um, apartment 302. And so we started there um, in 99 uh, and um, probably not, you know, in retrospect, it wasn't the wisest of, of place. Real <laughs> estate is a laggard industry. Yeah, it, by a lot. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, we had entree and uh, we, you know, we shot out of the gate. And in 99 and 2000, we had people just throwing money at us. And um, it was, uh, it was a wild ride. Um, I think in, in about, now, certainly less than three years, we went from nothing uh, to tens of millions of dollars in um, investment. Uh, we had purchased another company um, who had been in business for a decade or more doing similar stuff, um, grew to 230 people. And then um, when the investment, uh, the VC who had led a round um, was going to put into the round in two tranches when that VC basically evaporated in um, this was 2000, late 2000 or 2000, early 2001. Um, and the second tranche never materialized. We went from 130 people down to 16 overnight. 
and wow. then had to uh, you know, had to figure things all out again as we were all taking um, support calls at our homes. Oh yeah, throughout- no, that's insane. <laughs> I mean, that was yeah, two thousand. I mean, ninety nine, two thousand, the peak of the bubble, internet bubble, right? I mean, yeah. when if you if you lived through that, you now, I mean, you knew like what craziness was. I mean, now the 2008 bubble as well. And now obviously the 2020 COVID <laughs> fiasco. Yeah, 2020 to 2023 or whenever. It'll whenever it's going to end, right? I mean, I wouldn't call it a fiasco. I shouldn't say that because it's not a fiasco. We have, we have to do what we have to do. But living through that, like going back from what hundreds of people down to 16, I mean, that takes yeah. a toll. Yeah, it did. It, it 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 did, and it took a long while for us to sort of climb out of that hole. Um, and it, it took a long while for us to, um, you know, get to a point of stability. And um, you know, we would have there. There were a couple of lucky things that happened along the way, but uh, foremost was in two thousand four. Um, I think it was I'm not exactly sure the timing, but we moved to a um, recurring revenue model. And so we moved from sort of a, a old school enterprise sales. So we started in 99 as a cloud-based service. Um, and that was very early for enterprise cloud oh, service. That's the beginning. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things proudest of the work that we did there was the technical achievements that we had in terms of keeping a cloud service running up over 60 some odd major releases over, over you know, that 17, 18 year time span. Wow. But um, moving in 2004 to a recurring revenue model really saved us. Um, because we went from this real up and down, we're dependent on the next gig, and therefore it's an enterprise sales, and they want these things looking this way and these things looking this way, and we have to, in order to get the deal, we're going to have to make these changes to the application to just having that recurring revenue, and that that really saved us. And um, we brought in um, a few professional um, managers uh, to take over uh, to replace the CEO. And um, that really got us to a point where we were um, able to move forward uh, through cash flow and, um, and, you know, building our own business. And so, um, wow. And that was 2004. Well, we, the 2004 was the change to recurring revenue. Yeah. Model. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's like, and then it took us another while to learn <laughs> economic discipline. <laughs> <laughs> So for those of you that are listening who are a little younger than uh, Gregory and I, um, 2004, a recurring revenue model in 2004 was almost unheard of in terms of like a SaaS cloud-based thing. I mean, it just didn't – I don't even think AWS existed back then. I mean, right. you know, I mean there's just this is like literal the first time these things are happening. I mean, just just imagine that. And now – Nowadays, like you spin a cloud up, spin a server, AWS, it, you literally get it for free almost, right? Back then, you guys probably had your own hardware, your own, you know, your own iron somewhere in some server room where you got to like worry that it's not going to blow up. Yeah, no, we we still did. For um, we only began really migrating to some of the the cloud based services um, much later, within the last three years or so, um, just because we 
we had built a skill set around doing that and doing that really well and yeah. having it in our own data center. So, um, yeah, people think data center. I don't even know what that looks like. <laughs> <laughs> we did. <laughs> yeah, no, well, it's funny because, uh, and this is total tangent, but in the side, but, but sometimes as you scale up, and you're doing more cloud services, AWS type services, there reaches a point where it's cheaper to build your own hardware. It's it, it's mm-hmm. literally cheaper if you've got enough scale, literally go to a data center and like have it dedicated because, it, you know, and there's some, obviously you got to be at that economy of scale, but the, the there's a lost art in that. So, wow. Like you're like the pioneer <laughs> in cloud services starting 99. Wow. And then move into the rev, recurring revenue amount in 2004. So that's a lot of change and a lot of, I mean, there's just a lot that you've gone through. Like, I mean, the, the evolution of this company has gone through, I mean, 99, then 2004 transition of recurring revenue, 2008 recession, you know, and now, I mean, you sold a couple of years ago, but now it's like the, you know, the 2020 recession or whatever. What, what, what are some of those lessons? Like, how did you, how did you adapt all that change? Cause it's a lot of change. I mean, and that's, we're all about entrepreneurs. We're all about, you know, managing the change. How, how did, how did you handle that? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it take, take things one step at a time and prioritize and, and find good people. I mean, I think, we had a great team, um, a team of people who really believed in each other, and we were um, able to, uh, you know, the the average when I left, um, the average tenure on my team was something like eight years or so. Um, so wow, I, there there's there's people that I left working with that I had worked for, I'd worked together with for twenty four years. Wow, twenty four years. And so in the valley, you just don't get that sort of thing, right? No, 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 you don't. You don't. So do you think that was sort of the secret or one of the secrets to handling the change? Is that sort of continuity of talent? That, that was part of it. Um, the continuity of talent, uh, the, the ease we had with each other, the, the knowledge that we could trust each other, um, the ease of communication between us, how we would, you know, could just communicate very um nuanced uh and, and and complicated things in simple shorthand because we had so much shared background and so i think that's that's that was helpful um you know continued um you know continually searching for you know where we would find signal in the marketplace um we sort of drifted across um uh, markets. Uh, we started out, as I said, in residential property management, moved to commercial property management, and then went into retail, and then went into restaurants, um, and uh, and from there um, ended up going into um, sort of third party uh, property management services. Um, and uh, you know, I think there are a lot of lessons to be mined from that. Um, one of the things was we built an enterprise application, but we built it to support a number of different um, verticals or a number of different, they're different real estate verticals, right? They're not fully verticals. 
Um, but that allowed us to be very flexible as a system and uh, be, you know, do everything not through customization, but through configuration. Hmm. And we built a highly configurable system that way um, that also ran smoothly and according to a very, uh, very straightforward, easy to understand workflow. Um, the, the other piece of that was as we went into these different markets, um, we started to identify where we could get good. Um, and you know, that allowed us to not be beholden to any one industry. And so in 2008, um, <laughs> ironic, it was ironic, but the, the one market that we really got deep in, and by deep, I mean, we had something like four of the top 10 um, companies in the, in the country um, using our product was home builders. Hmm. And we really had a, a thriving business in the homeowner industry in 2007 leading up to 2008. And then, of course, Boom. <laughs> and the bottom completely dropped out of that and they were gone. Wow. Wow. I just, I am, yeah. it, it, I, I am, I am, always impressed <laughs> well, i'm always impressed because by people who've gone through like this 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 these trying times because i mean i was again I, I, my career you know started in 95 went through the 99 2000 recession went through the 2008 you know there's all these you just feel like oh wow not again you sort of know kind of what's going on and but yeah to like have all this man, we're just crushing it in construction. And all of a sudden it's like, no more construction. Boom. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, the the one, you know, real learning from this, and, and it, we did learn it there in construction. And, and, and um, the, the learning was we had been selling into uh, the expense side of companies and, and selling as an enterprise software into the expense side. Um, we were selling to facilities, which was the sort of lowest, lowest rung of, of the corporate hierarchy in terms of power and, and juice in order to make, be able to make decisions, right? When selling enterprise, if you're selling into finance or you're selling into HR, then you have people who are really willing to listen. The facilities is really down there. At, there, yeah. at the there. Operations <laughs> is never. Yeah. They're they're 5% of the when you look at the whole thing like sales, marketing, finance, HR, yeah. development, ops, <laughs> all the way down. Yeah, they're the cheap the guys. <laughs> so that 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 was that was always a challenge and when we moved to the um, top of the ledger when we moved to the profit side by going to third party um, service, you know, property management services companies. Um, that changed the game. And that was sort of like what we were doing in uh, in the home builders is that we were operating at sort of the customer interface level, where, where it's really about revenue generation, um, how well you could please your customer. And in the case of home builders, it was the warranty service arm of it. It was, you know, 30 days after you've bought your new home or 90 days after you've bought your new home. But it really, that sort of customer service really played into referrals for them. Oh, and yeah. So big, very important super to get, big. keep the customer very happy. And same thing with property, uh, property management services. You're doing the exact same thing, but all of a sudden you're working with people for whom this is revenue. This, this is revenue generating opportunity, not just sort of the bottom 
three to five percent of expenses, right? So um, that was that was a big learning for me. Um, you know, it was just how different everything changed when we started. You know, because all of a sudden we had access to the C-suite where we really didn't before. And that's where decisions get done. Yes. Yes, indeed. You always want to be the best friend with the finance <laughs> the finance guy or the marketing sales guy or gal. Yeah. <laughs> They're the ones that are generating revenue. I like that. That That is a lesson. The Make sure you're on the revenue side. Like you're helping generate revenue as opposed to lowering costs, which is not bad. But I mean, that's the more, more growth is on the revenue side. I think it's always been that way. I've actually seen that as well in some of the companies that I've worked at. You know, it was a great idea, but we were always like, we're going to be make it more efficient. Eh, yeah, maybe yeah. unless it's like a requirement or a regulation. But, you know, people want to generate more revenue. <laughs> I'm going to make them generate more revenue. It's a harder sell. Not to say that it's there's not a lot of great companies doing operational efficiency, but just way harder when you're not hard to sell. Yeah. yeah and particularly when uh, change management gets involved right when, when you're not only having to write the checkbook but you're having to get people to work together to change embedded processes and things that have worked you know people ask why, why are we why are we changing this it, it's always worked for us before you know yeah. to say the way we've always done it that's a lot big one in healthcare because <laughs> i was you know at a healthcare company and boy just they are like, we've been doing it this way forever. Why do we have to change? And unless, unless the we'll government, yeah, we'll look at healthcare. I mean, yeah, it's, it's it, but it, it, but I, yeah, that's it, actually a really insightful thing for for young entrepreneurs to realize is what are you are are you on the revenue generation side or are you on the efficiency side? Because yeah. the, it's a harder sell on the efficiency side. It's a harder sell like making irking, you know. Are you going after the guys with the 5% of the budget or are you going after the gals with the <laughs> 100% of the revenue requirement? You know, like they want to make more money or they want to do more sales. Absolutely. And you, you need to have a very easy return on investment uh, story to tell, right? And, and, and the, the speed at which that gets implemented and the amount of pain that people are willing to take on in order to get the change to occur um, is is much much lower than they would to bring in additional revenue, and so totally. it's all part of the calculation. Totally. So after twenty years, you sort mm -hmm. of sell the company, you leave, and you go off and do something else. Yeah, yeah, go off and do something else. I mean, it, it, I really, really appreciated the last three years that I was there under employment contract, and we got purchased by JLL Jones Lang LaSalle. Um, and, you know, in comparison to this other Chicago-based company, Motorola, uh, JLL was a fantastic company to work for. And it really was my first exposure to sort of a big company done right. And they've got their problems as well. Oh, yeah. Everyone but, does. Everybody does. But the way they treated us, the way it, it went through, um, that was it was a polar opposite experience than the Motorola acquisition. And so um, I, I really like that because met a lot, met a lot of good people, you know, in, in corporate doing good work, and and that was that was that was fulfilling to me to have that experience. And um, you know, from a from a product guy's perspective, um, which was my role in the company, uh, it was also exciting because we went from uh, always being, uh, you know 
sort of beholden to our sales and marketing to sort of drive things. All of a sudden, we got purchased by this company that had you know a hundred of the you know, global five hundred um, companies that they were doing turnkey real estate for, and so basically overnight we had. Uh, double, triple the number of users. And so that was, that was thrilling as well. So enjoyed those last three years. They were fun. So yeah, now you know what, what Zoom feels like right now. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh my God, we 10 x over. What just happened? You know, I mean, they're having their problems, right? But yeah. as, as anything grows, it is, is so tough and painful. You, you see all where all the bodies are buried when you start to grow super rapidly. Yeah, yeah. Sure. all the little the little little chinks in the armor become big big problems. They become huge. So, so yeah, I, I um, that was a great experience. But I had spent twenty years in facility management, and it really wasn't a a I, I, I like and a lot of great people in that industry. But it's I, I wanted to do something that was more um, closer to my heart, and um, so started looking around and and and. Um, talking with a bunch of people and uh, went back to an idea that I had eight years or so ago and um, moving more into the uh, mental wellness, behavioral health um, side of, of things uh, and um, really focused on uh, helping people heal um, and using, uh, you know, using community and group aspects of um group dynamics to help people heal. And that's really been sort of the central thread of what we've been trying to do um, for about a year now. Um, really started, yeah, it's really started um, in, in uh, this in May of last year. And uh, I met my partner um, in August and uh, we've been working in uh, the VR space um, in uh, experiences of um, interpersonal um, exchange that helps with uh, healing. I mean, deep, deep uh, forms of interconnection that we can support through immersive technology. And um, it's been an exciting, um, exciting time. And uh, we've met some great people. And we've uh, recently partnered with a um, group out of the University of Bristol, mm-hmm. um, who we had been working on um, a prototype and uh, learned a lot about what's possible in VR and about sensor technology and what you can do with um, heart rate variability and, and um, you know, how we can uh, modify things for people. But we were working with a, a group of developers who came, in, came out of the gaming industry. And um, a lot of VR that you see today is it's got a look that comes out of the, the driving engines of those things. And um, it, it never really was resonant to, you know, even ourselves as users in a way that we felt it could be if we had the right sort of underlying engine. And that's what we found with this group out of, of um, University of Bristol. And so, um, Actually, what they had been working uh, with was exactly the thing that we we're sort of looking as a prototype for. And we've met, we met them um, in February and started working together. And we now have the first North American installation of uh, what they built in their lab. And we're hopefully, as soon as stay at and, you know, the shelter in place orders are lifted, we're going to start to run users 
users through our experience here um, and uh, collect data and go from there. And so I'm really excited about this this uh, project. It's um, It's got some neat things associated with it. Yeah. I mean, can you can you expand a little bit about kind of the underlying science behind it and sort of what, I mean, your timing's pretty much perfect when it comes to healing the world because the world's going through a lot of collective trauma right now. No ands, ifs, or buts about it. The When we get through the other end of this, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to need a lot of help. Um, yeah. There's no, no doubt. You see that in so many ways. Um, so can you explain a little bit about kind of how it works and what you're trying to do? Sure. So um, what what we've done is uh, experiences of deep interconnection. And um, what what we knew was possible, although we were having a hard time coming in, as I said, coming up with the prototype, is um, to create experiences. Um, we've always looked at VR and said, look, I don't want to do the same thing that I can do in real life. Real life is so much more high def than VR will ever be. Um, what I want to do in VR and the cool things to do in VR are the things that you could never do in, in real life. And so um, how, do you, how do you create experiences that are beyond um, what we can do in, um, you know, in real life? And so um, what this is is... Uh, the, our, our, our new partner coined this term pneumodelic um, for uh, pneuma uh, spirit and, and spirit manifesting. And the idea is that um, you, you ha- go into this experience and you can experience other beings as their essence. And it basically takes people out of their identity and puts them together with other people and with this other being um, that allows them to connect in a way that really shows people their core human essence as opposed to sort of all the surface and all the identity stuff that we get bound up with every day. And so people have these really amazing experiences on this. um, And the uh, you know, the, the intent was to create um, what's called a mystical uh, experience, a, something that is akin to a direct spiritual experience. Um, and the data that has been collected using this, this prototype so far is that um, it's, it's similar. Um, it's a totally different experience than a psychedelic. Um, but it produces similar mystical type experiences uh, to a fairly significant dose psychedelic. And um, that was the intent is, is can you give people a completely perspective shifting sort of experience uh, in about an hour's time that gives them connection to something that's beyond themselves, that's greater than themselves. And that's what we think we've achieved in this, you know, in this prototype. We've got a lot of work still to do, but um, that's the promise is so that people can come in and have truly transformative uh, perspective shifting uh, experiences that can help them create meaning and, 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 and see themselves and others in a different light and, and really connect them with something outside themselves. You know, all of us are so tied into this, the, the, this, vision of ourselves at the center of everything and and um 
you know, really connecting with something outside of ourselves. And particularly as we try to do this, is use the technology to turn people towards the real world, to the natural world. Um, and that's the attempt is, is um, instead of pulling people more into their own identity, pull them out and connect them with something greater than themselves. So that's what we're working on. And, wow. Um, that's pretty intense. <laughs> I mean, you're the first person that I've ever met that's trying to do something like this. Um, and I know there's a lot of research around this. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a bit much to take in. I remember when you first talked with me about this idea, I I couldn't figure it out because again, I think it's because of the way we have to sort of shift our thinking about how, uh, you know, how, who we are and how we fit in the world. Um, and the thing that's really, I think, directly applicable of what you're doing is there has been a lot of research on people that have gone through trauma or, or having difficulty that especially PTSD, um, end of life. There's a lot of people that are working on this sort of thing. Do you see this as sort of a complementary to like a therapy practice where you have a therapist and you know, you're sort of, it's hard. It's a hard thing to kind of grasp because, you know, there's different modalities of therapy. Therapy is important in some aspects. Different types of therapy do different things. How do you see this fitting in? Because because it's a totally. I mean, this is totally new. Like literally, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we we see it definitely as complementary. Um, complementary to, um, you know. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, complementary to um, some forms of, uh, you know, substance abuse recovery. And I, I can speak a little bit about that because that's, that's, I am not a, a, a trained therapist and not a doctor. And I, I, you know, I don't have a big background on this. I have personal experience um, with therapy and, and personal experience with substance abuse issues, which have been sort of my, my personal issue. And, um, you know, the, the 12 step program, which, uh, has been successful for quite a few people. Um, and it has its, its, um, adherence and its detractors. Um, but it is something that can be helpful for, for certain people. Um, and, you know, has been quite successful in, in a number of cases. And, and there's different bits of that that are successful. And, you know, one of the things that, that, really brought it home for me is that part of it is certainly the um, interpersonal relationship, the, the, that you build with um, your sponsor. And that, that's, that's key, I think, to the 12 step program. Um, But the 12 step program itself has a, has sort of as a significant portion of the steps are founded in this idea that um, the individual believes in something that's greater than themselves. Um, and that, you know, a, a, whether you call it God or spirit or whatever it is, something, something greater. And, um, I think in, in our secular world today, um, a lot of people don't have a conception of what that is and, and don't have any form of, uh, have never had any form of direct spiritual experience. And so, um, 
simply having this sort of experience, which can open up your mind to say, seeing that hey, there is a world greater than me and there, the world is more than what comes in through my eyes every day. There's something more, a little bit more, something there that's a little bit more. That can have a profound impact on the way that people see themselves and, and how they act in the world. And so, um, you know, Bill W., the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, forerunner of the 12-step program, um, actually, uh, there's um, quite a few reports of this, but he, in the 50s, he went through LSD therapy, um, and he believed that LSD was one of the keys to helping addicts recover because he saw this direct connection that um, people who haven't grown up in some sort of spiritual um, background I could find that through LSD and that that would help form a cornerstone of their recovery process. Um, and I, I think that's true. And I've spoken with a lot of people who believe that to be true. And, and um, we're seeing, uh, you know, real good science being done on the benefits of psychedelics um, to be used in addiction recovery. Um, but, you know, psychedelics aren't for everyone and, and they're um, there. They can be, um, you know, unpredictable in, in their use. And, um, you know, certainly not something that you would want to give to a kid. Um, and so there are cases where they, they aren't, and, and certainly in somebody who's maybe going through drug substance abuse, um, issues, uh, you don't exactly want to give them a drug, even though psychedelics <laughs> are not for the use. They're, they're, yeah. um, it's not exactly the right thing. But to give them technology, which can give them not the same experience, but similar sort of insight into how the, to see the world differently, um, can be helpful. But it's definitely complementary to all the other things that happen. So complementary to a 12-step program, complementary to um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, but that, that's what we see it as, is something that can give people a significant change in perspective that they work with their therapist to then use that as a building block for their new life, however that life's going to be. Is that a good answer? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great answer, actually. No, I mean, th there's a lot of people that are searching for that. I mean, you, you know, addiction and trauma people go through a lot of challenges and struggles with life and you know this is what is what it is i mean i've talked about i had i've abused substances before to handle my grief and i don't do that anymore and part of that's been because of the therapy the recognition that this isn't good for me and really getting down to the core of well why am i what am i missing you know, what, what is it about the experience I'm going through? What, why, why am I doing this? Um, and I think having a toolbox of all sorts of different tools to help people, I mean, because not one size is not fit all, right? Like you said, it's, it's for some people, it's not for some people, but, but to have like a nice toolbox of therapies, methods, things to try, because we're all different people. Some people get motivated by different things. Some people don't. Some people, you know, they have a, a, a different root cause as to why the addiction's there, why the sadness, why the depression. I mean, there's there's all sorts of reasons. And again, I'm not a doctor. I don't have no idea. I just know what works for me. Yeah. And I also know that there's a lot of therapists that are struggling to find 
ways to help people. And it's only going to get worse. And it's only yeah. going to get worse because of the situation we're in that's exposed the huge amount of challenges people are undergoing, but also mental health has been swept under the rug for a long time and can't sweep it under the rug anymore. It's just going to accelerate. You can, you can, again, you can tell that. So I think what you're doing is pretty cool. I mean, I, I can't wait to actually want experience it because <laughs> that'd, yeah. be, that'd be great. Um, yeah. I'm, I'll, I'm going to put you on the list. Yes, for, please do. Please do. I'm start having people over, but um, get you on the list and have you, have you experienced this? Yeah. I mean, I think in the bigger picture sense of things, um, one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I, I've personally gone through in the last 18 months quite a evolution. Of, you know, I was working in this company and, and JLL is a very, you know, sort of um, corporate, corporate America um, sort of company. And uh, walking out of there sort of began to expose me to a whole other, side of of life and, and and people and and look at things from a very different perspective and um of, of the many things i've learned one of the things that's been uh, most um helpful to me has been um, the writings of charles eisenstein are you familiar with the charles no, eisenstein? No, no. so um he wrote a book um, called climate um and in it he talks about which i i, I highly recommend um, and it's, he's talking about, uh, you know, our ecology and the ecological devastation that we're taking our planet through. And he, he creates a very simple argument that, um, you know, humans, uh, evolved in this world where they had a very close relationship with the natural world and the, the, the way that we evolved in tribes as hunter gatherers, um, we had extremely close relations with everybody in that tribe. We knew all the details, intimate details of their life. And our understanding of place was extremely deep, but limited. We only knew sort of the places that we went, but we knew everything, everything about them. Everything about them. Yeah, totally. All the birds, all the insects, all the plants, all we had this, we knew we're dependent on uh, the sun and the moon. And, and we had this extremely close relationship to all of the systems that were functioning around us. And um, the, what, what Charles uses the term, the story of separation. And as we, you know, science has brought us a lot of, of great things. But prior to science, it was, it was philosophy, right? It was natural sciences. But it was this idea that humans are somehow apart from the world of nature, the world that actually created us. And that this has been reified through the scientific method as we've become more and more uh, removed from the systems that actually support life. And if you think about, you know, going to the grocery store and going to a, a fluorescent lit grocery store and all the bright packaging on the, on the um, shelves that you look at, how removed that is from actual actually the plants that grew that or the animals that had to be slaughtered in order to create that. Um, and that removal, that story of separation is in part um, something that we've just in, in our modern lives have embodied um, and, and don't think anything of, but it's created this separation that allows us to uh, be willing to go along with ecological devastation and, um, and, 
but at the cost that it's going to cost us all um, significantly and it's costing you know several species anyway I don't mean to be on a monologue um, about about this um, except that this this basic idea that we are somehow separated in from the world which is very life affirming in which we evolved um, you know, we believe at, at Sotolicio in a company that um, that that act of separation that piece of separation is in a large part um, one of the driving problems for the mental health issues, the mental health crisis that we see today, that people are not in the same sort of deep relations that they had with their family or their, you know, the friends that they depended on or the earth around them. And this, even though we have these myriad communication tools that, that are ostensibly intended to keep us closer, closer connected, they don't, they're all surface level sort of connections. They're not these deep, connections and what we're trying to do is paradoxically use technology to help reinforce those sort of fundamental connections between people um, in in hopes that that will help people um, help them heal and so that that's that's a long-winded very um uh sort of how to describe it um i may be so heavy-handed in it but it, it's it's um we believe there's something fundamental here and that the way that the world needs to um, operate in a going forward way is, is, is not the way that um, extractive capitalism, um, you know, it wants us to, to move forward. We, we have to change things. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, COVID is a, is a virus and, and it came about through natural processes, most likely. And, um, but it's a sign and it's something to listen to, to figure out, you know, Hey, maybe we're not going down this the right way and maybe we do need to make changes. And so that, that, that's part of the hope behind Solicio is, is how to move forward in something that's not business as usual extraction. Wow. Well, Gregory, that's a great place to end. <laughs> I really uh, appreciate your time and I'm, I'm really am looking forward to seeing what you guys come up with. Cause I do think, we need to be more connected and hopefully this will help. Yeah. I hope. Great, Jerry. A lot of fun. Great being with you. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learn something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early, 
so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.